Well, there were three men come out of the west, their fortunes for to try. And these three men made a solemn vow, John Barleycorn must die. They ploughed, they sowed, they rattled him in, poor clods all on his head. Then these three men made a solemn oath, John Barleycorn was dead. They've let him lie for a very long time to the rain from heaven did pour. Hello, welcome to my Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins. Welcome to week one of a two-week special podcast. Stay tuned because it's magic. I want to thank you all again for tuning in each week. The download figures have been incredible, actually. This little podcast continues to resonate with pilgrims around the world. I receive messages all the time from people who say they love the podcast and they thank me for doing what I do. Well, can I just say, I love it. I love the connection. I love the community we've created. And I love the kindness of people reaching out to thank me for doing what I do. It's me who should be thanking you. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for inviting me to be part of your Camino. This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, or the way of St. James. St. James was one of Christ's apostles, and people from all over the world walked the Camino as a pilgrimage. I was honoured last week to be invited to appear on a Zoom meeting hosted by my friend Tom Labuzinski. Tom is part of the Illinois chapter of the American Friends of the Camino, one of my former podcast guests. Tom interviewed me and we talked about my journey. We talked about our collective journey and about love. If we're motivated by love, we share and live love. If we're motivated by love, we care and offer love. St. James would be delighted that his legacy is about love. The ultimate message of joy, kindness and forgiveness and generosity, acceptance. Pilgrims are very good Samaritans, and I'm delighted to consider myself and to find myself part of your community. Talking to some of my friends in the United States over the last fortnight, I said I was just so impressed by Amanda Gorman, the young poet who spoke at President Joe Biden's inauguration. I thought her performance was not just words on a page, but a promise for all of us, everyone around the world. She said, when day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it, for there is always light. If only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. The American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson lived from 1803 to 1882. He said, What lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. God bless the thinkers. God bless the poets. God bless us all to be brave enough to see it and be it. God bless us for simply being humans. My guest this week is a fascinating human being. William Parsons is a British musician, a historian, a pilgrim, and he's on the line from the UK. Welcome, Pilgrim. 
Hello, Dan, and good morning to you. Well, it's great to talk to you. I've been fascinated by your work. You're a co-founder of the British Pilgrimage Trust, and I want to get to your journey with the Trust in a moment. But I saw your social media handle said that you are a wandering minstrel. What? <laughs> what is a wandering minstrel? Well, may I say, first of all, thank you very much, Dan, for the, for the privilege and honour of, of speaking with you and with your many global friends and guests and listeners and followers. Hello to everyone. What is a wandering minstrel? Well, that's a lovely question. I must say that when I first became a wandering minstrel, I had no idea what one was, nor whether one could actually become such a thing in the 21st century. Because, well, let's face it, like pilgrimage, but not quite to such a similar degree, like pilgrimage, many of the traditions, the itinerant traditions of humanity, our journeying on foot to seek a simpler, kinder reality, haven't been seen in recent years to quite the same degree they perhaps once were. So wandering minstrelsy to me was a, was a happy accident that, that pretty much guided my 20s. Um, it's not where I start though, Dan. Can I start at the beginning? Of course, I'd love you to. Yeah, go right ahead. Well, well you see, I started off as a classical pilgrim. That's, that's where I came at my whole journey from. I was in university and I was trying to write a dissertation about Chaucer. You know, the writer of the of Canterbury Tales. Yeah. yeah. Of course, I'm sure, I'm sure he's a way in for many people, a bit like your way in to the Camino was through the, the um, Shirley MacFarlane book. You know, yeah. my, my way in through British pilgrimage was through Geoffrey. And, um, but I wasn't exactly a fan because I'd been reading about the political riots in 1381 and Chaucer was a customs controller for London and he lived in the apartments above the gate through which the rebelling peasants ran, having beheaded an archbishop, burnt the tax records, emptied the jails. That was as close as Britain ever got to a full revolution. Um, it was after, you know, it was feudal conditions. People weren't allowed to leave their parish of birth to look for better wages. We'd had, just had a plague and everyone was locked in really bad working contracts. And the king said, you know, statute of limitations, you can't, you can't move. You, you have to stay in your mm. place. Mm. We own you. <laughs> yeah. And that pressure, which may feel to a lot of people, to some degree similar to what people feel now, perhaps, that pressure led to this bursting out um, and this seeking of freedom. And Chaucer, in his Canterbury Tales, didn't mention the Peasants' Revolt. In fact, there's this almost... Opposite, the, the story is almost exact opposite. His pilgrims are all middle and upper middle class. They're all on horseback. They're all traveling in the exact opposite direction. Instead of Kent to London, they're all going from London to Kent. And they don't discuss politics at all. It's all, you know, slightly naughty tales and um, amusing uh, stories of, mm. of life and legend. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's this conspicuous absence of that's reality. So I wanted to investigate whether or not Chaucer was, you know, actually covering up the reality of pilgrimage. So that inspired me to make my own first practical pilgrimage, to actually get out on the path with my, my father's walking boots, which I'd inherited the year before. And yeah, yeah they fit perfectly. Um, <laughs> and yeah. And I wanted to find out whether or not Chaucer was... You know, what was he hiding? What, what was the reality of the landscape of modern pilgrimage? And so I walked 
with a friend from Winchester to Canterbury, not, not London, because I tend to avoid London if I possibly can, especially on foot. Um, and the experience was, you know, absolutely eye-opening. It all went terribly wrong, of course. It's my first pilgrimage. I got wet, cold, blistered, hungry, lost, you know, everything, the classic problems that you can meet. I met them wonderfully. Um, as well as a few unique challenges, uh, for example, a social challenge. I met a lovely old lady, an 80-year-old lady in a pub who wanted to keep buying me pints of beer. And that was lovely. But all the locals, when I went to the bar to pick up you know, what she'd ordered, the locals said, don't you take advantage of Betty's hospitality. <laughs> and I had to, yeah, yeah, they wanted to protect this old lady from, you know, potentially unscrupulous outsiders, which I'm sure is something that pilgrims throughout history have encountered the, the uncertainty of the local. Um, and so that first opportunity to try and overcome the doubt of the communities through which I passed, that, you know, because I did manage to, I managed to tell them it's okay, Betty's sound, there's mm. no abuse happening, you know, yeah. but, I'm going to drink, but I'm going to drink her beer and I'm going to talk to her. <laughs> and she was wonderful. She, she, she taught us one, taught me wonderful songs and uh, I had a great time with her. And that was you know, my first opening salvo challenge on, on pilgrimage. Next came camping, wild camping on the North Downs on the Chalk Hills one night uh, with, you know, the fire crackling away and a pot of stew bubbling. And suddenly hearing that noise, you know, just beyond the firelight, you hear the noise of humans and think, OK, what do I do? Do I grab my stick? Do I try and reach for my knife? I mean, what's this? What's going to happen? Is this, yeah. you know, I've seen, I've seen Crime Watch as well, that you know, sort of the fear of the outsider encroaching. And then, and then in he came, this giant green clad man, all in barber wax cotton with a low brimmed hat covering his eyes, huge beard. And he said, you know, what are you doing here? <laughs> which was reassuring because dialogue is normally missing from the crime watch reconstruction videos. So. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and it's the first time I ever said it. I said, well, uh, I'm a pilgrim on my way to Canterbury. And there was this silence as that sort of that word fell into the, to the darkness and, and, you know, the, the stew pot clanked with the fire. And then he said, oh, Oh, Pilgrim. Oh, well, that's okay then. I thought you were a troublemaker up here burning out cars or something. Pilgrims are. Oh. Well, good luck on your way to Canterbury and, uh, you know, have a good time. Cheerio. Wow. And that was it. And he wandered off into the dark. And it was the first time I realised I experienced the power of the word Pilgrim and how it can unlock an acceptance and a generosity as though the land itself and the people who live in Britain know and recognise that symbol of you know, the traveller, the pilgrim. And there's a welcome that I hadn't previously suspected. And I've got to say, for the next 10 years, I've pretty much surfed to that wave of, of welcome. Not entirely as a pilgrim, though, if, because when I arrived at Canterbury, the great next challenge I met was that it was locked and there was a, uh, there was a concert going on and all these fur-coated ladies were sort of shuffling in to listen to a requiem. And... I wanted to go in too, and, and the, the vergers who are ever ever were a stubborn lot of at course. Canterbury, yeah. God bless them, um, said, "No way, no way, mate. Look at you. You're a you're a muddy, scruffy, bearded, and um, what's that stick about?" <laughs> um, and and I wasn't allowed in, and yeah. that, you know, at the time it sort of oh that irked that irked me no end, I must say. But and it did actually turn me away from what I perceived to be the classical pilgrimage tradition and led me into 
as you said a moment ago, wandering minstrelsy. And so for the next eight years, I was almost a defiant non-pilgrim, making these, you know, three months, six months, eight months, nine months walks across and around Britain um, to, with no particular fixed destination, you know, walking to Wales or walking to, to Cornwall or walking you know, to Liverpool or just or just walking west or walking north, just having no real fixed clue of where I was going and paying my way for singing for my supper with, with a friend. And we sung traditional British, what you might call folk songs, although yeah. folk is uh, the F word in, in, in the traditional song circle. It's a Victorianism, <laughs> which had, you know, all songs, what, uh, you know, folk is, is everyone. So all songs belong to all of us. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a misnomer. But... Uh, yeah, that was that was my twenties. I became a wandering minstrel, and yeah. I'd like to tell you and your listeners that, as a form of itinerant tradition, song and journey, you know, they go together. Yeah. Um, I think uh, what's his name, Mr. Chatwin, wrote about the song lines in your continent, um, and yeah. about how the, uh, the 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 First Nation, or the Aboriginal peoples, I'm not Absolutely. quite sure what they say, but the, these, this idea of song lines, I. As far as I can tell, that's that's a pan-human tradition. It's not that's not especially to one land or another. We all sing and we all walk, and though that combination of the two has always been part of humanity. As as you said, storytelling is what we do, and telling a story with the addition of melody and with the addition of a lineage of singer. So you know, the song doesn't just come from you; it comes from everyone else who sung it before you. They yeah. used to be learned by the oral tradition, of course. So, so that was an experiment for about eight years that I made, and and it was incredibly exciting. <laughs> I mean, it's a great life that really does work. You can end up singing, you know, care homes and schools and weddings and funerals and birthdays and and more pubs than you know I, I, I knew existed. And there's this incredible, you know, half the nights out on those journeys were spent in strangers' homes. There was this seam of, of generous welcome that if you read the newspaper, you, you would think just has never even existed, but I found it is alive and well. Hospitality in Britain, they're not words that you always associate with, with each other, yeah. hospitality in the UK, but it's, it's very much not an Eastern tradition, only it's absolutely alive and kicking, or you know, it was until recently, shall we say. What I find fascinating is a young guy with his pal decides to head off on a pilgrimage and, and sing songs and, and, and go off on a pilgrimage. But how did you know those songs? How did you, how did you know what songs would resonate with those people, those people that invited you into their homes, those communities, the, the back of the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church or the little what, wherever? How did you know what songs would resonate with those people? That's a great question. Um, well, I didn't, obviously. I had no idea at all. Right. When, I set, when I set off on these journeys, there was no intention of singing. My, I used to love to sing, you know. My, my grandfather was a vicar in, in the village church up the road. And every Sunday, I loved it. We went, you know, dressed in my best corduroys. Yeah. And, uh, and sung, you know, most of the hymns in the Anglican canon. I'm, you know, there's, there's a lot of bangers in there. I like them. But obviously, there's some that aren't quite so good. But I, I loved it. Until one day, my parents said, hey, what about the choir school in Canterbury? You could go and live there and learn to sing. 
And I was age six and something, some instinct in me said, you know, warning, warning. <laughs> and I just zipped up and stopped singing. Absolute, I emanated silence for the next 15 years. Whenever anyone sung, I didn't. You know, I, I, I don't exactly know where that stubbornness really? came from. Yes, yes, until, until after my father died, in fact. What? Um, yeah, yeah. Are you, no, really? Yeah, yeah, he was, he was a sort of, you know, quite a famous local singer, my dad, and, and a radical rambler. He uh, used to put up styles on all the footpaths at sort of midnight and through East Kent to, and got chased off by the farmers with their uh, shotguns and dogs. And he sung all around all the villages and made, ran choirs. And I, just, I just did not want to go to choir school. <laughs> yeah. And it's the only weapon I had that I couldn't persuade. As a six-year-old, you can't enter a rational debate with your parents. You know, I just had to prove an absolute unwillingness. And so that's what I did. And then walking with my friend, we, we set off, as I said, we didn't want to be wandering minstrels. And we also, at the time, didn't want to be pilgrims, Dan. I, was like, I tried pilgrimage, and I felt a rejection from the tradition. So it, it, although the form of what we were doing was, you know, pretty much classical pilgrimage, you walk from Canterbury Cathedral to St. David's Cathedral, you know, it's it, it be hard to argue in real terms that wasn't a pilgrimage, it was eight months' walk. But we did not call it that. But we had Ray Mears guidebooks. We wanted to live off the land. We thought we could, you know, we could just wander forever and, and forage our way around Britain. We were optimistic and naive, and that's a good mix, I think, for a, for a long journey. Um, and we soon got hungry. <laughs> Within two weeks, we were, we were we set off with no money, and we had these five stone backpacks, and we were, you know, we were young and, as I said, foolish. Yeah. And we realized that we had ultimately a choice. We had to make some money so we could you know, pay our way, or we had to go home and give up. And we knew between us three folk songs, three traditional songs. So made a little cardboard sign from, you know, cardboard out the bins, singing for our supper, walking to Wales. And on the streets of Rye, which is a beautiful little medieval town on a small hilltop with a church at the top and rings of houses all around it, probably looks the same as it did 800 years ago. Um, used to be a famous port. Um, now, not, not the same story, rivers are silted. Um, but it's still really beautiful. But on the back streets of this little town, we put down the hat, sung our three songs and repeat, and won golden compliments. And, you know, people gave us songs. And that was the real treasure, because they said, oh, do you know this one? And they would, they would sing to us a song, we'd record it on our little recorder. And we'd uh, write down lyrics, and they'd get, send us, give us photocopies of songs, and we'd just start learning this corpus of song that the journey itself provided us with. And so our capacity to sing grew and grew. And there's something about singing in public. It's such an outward gesture. You're giving with all this breath and all this lyrics and stories and the embodiment of the song. You're giving so much that it creates a sort of channel outward that other people can then approach you safely. And people do step up between songs and say, wow, what are you doing? What's going on? Where are you staying tonight? What do you need? And so began this time of gifts. I don't know what else to call it, where you know, the welcome, have, every, almost every night, you, we didn't even, like I said, half the nights out were spent in strangers' homes. And it's the strangest feeling to find yourself in the house of an absolute stranger. And them saying, here, here's the keys, lads. Help yourself to anything in the cupboards. I'm out for an hour. Got to get things done. Look after yourself. The shower's upstairs. Off you go. And they shut the door. And there you are in a stranger's house. And you've got absolute trust. You've got their key. And what's strange, Dan, is when that becomes normal. <laughs> yeah. You stop, stop finding it 
when stop finding it strange that's when that's when I, I've realized that there was something really special in this tradition and in how the wandering minstrel the bearer of song on foot is welcomed in the landscape and so we carried on you know we carried on and on and um, for about eight years that was my main work and it, it succeeded so well that it sort of you know it succeeded too well and we found ourselves on world service radio you know bbc television uh, vogue magazine and and i got a contract offer from decca records which we didn't take um, and then and then it just it became too much you know we our project as it were couldn't sustain the level of attention that it was achieving and we couldn't sustain our innocence and optimism and we started to look for ways to make it work as it were for us and that stopped it working because we we, we reached a, cro a crossroads my, my mm. friend and i and we had different ambitions and you know the success ended that journey but the call of the footpath is strong and i wasn't willing to put my dad's boots away yet so in 2014 went back to pilgrimage and but this time pilgrimage not exactly in the classical form pilgrimage to a song that was my sort of yeah re-entry gambit and yeah. there's this incredible song written in 1852 about these 37 hop pickers in kent who were swept off a bridge during a storm you know all lives lost and it was due to the non-maintenance of that bridge by the local navigation authority who all the all the local landowners and, and merchants and these 37 people were gypsies and irish itinerant laborers who had been picking the hops and hops was a huge profit you know if, if you were wealthy enough to own a hop farm it's it yeah. big money back in the day you know selling beer to the to the to the workers basically it was you know there was a huge vast market and and they all died, and at the inquest, the landowners were obviously absolved of all wrongdoing, and because you know the people who died were didn't really have recourse to justice in those days, should we say it wasn't wasn't quite the same atmosphere of justice as we hope we enjoy these days. And what was left from that was a song. There was a song of a sort of coded protest that that the families who survived wrote, and. I, I got taught the song on one of my long walks, and it was it's a hard one to sing. It's not a busker, because it's just, it's got a sort of jolly, lilting melody, but this grim lyric about some were men and women and others boys and girls, and it, it's it just, it's not comfortable. It's not a comfortable song. So my first pilgrimage of that kind was to walk to the bridge. It was about six days away from my house, and I wanted to take the song as a gift to commemorate the, their loss. And I've never made a journey like this with a, such a fixed destination and such an, a focused intention. Yeah. And, and, and a gift, very much a clear gift. I wanted to give this song to the yeah. place that, that's, that created it. And, and the, the focusing of the field of my journeys, because normally I've made these very long, very vague, wandering journeys where people say, hey, have you gone up that hill there we said no great let's go up the hill and just followed the wind you know that was that was how i sort of worked before but this time it was absolutely focused and intentional and i called it a pilgrimage and arriving after six days walk with all these incredible adventures on the way arriving 
at the grave of the hop pickers. No. There were two, two other people stood there and, you know, talking. So, well, what are you doing here? They said, well, we're descendants of the people who died. Oh, wow. Yeah, from, you know, 150 years ago. And we said, well, well, do you come here often? They said, no, never been here before. We're only here for 10 minutes. And this coincidence of, you know, my six days walking to meet no. the descendants right there. And I said, well, here's the thing, you know, do you mind if we sing the, your song? No. And they said, they said, they said, what song? And they had never even heard the song that was written no. by their descendants, for their descendants. And, and the sort of, yeah, so we got to actually not just return the song to its place of origin, but to its actual bloodline, which, which honestly, Dan, blew my mind. It was the, the, the sheer synchronicity of, oh. of that alignment made me realise that when you make these journeys with the focus, the intention and the gift of a pilgrimage, you know, it's like tightening the strings of a fiddle from this like vague instrument. It suddenly becomes a tuneful machine that can really that sings, you know. Wow. And, and that was that was the beginning of my pilgrimage tradition. I realised it, it it works. It's a functional technology. And as we know, pilgrimage is used by all faiths around the world. Every global faith has had a pilgrimage tradition, and 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 kind of every non-faith as well. It, it's a very much a human activity that we can find in, in all cultures and in all peoples throughout history uh, because as i said it simply works so so that was the beginning of, of my pilgrimage renaissance for me and that's what led to the british pilgrimage trust that you mentioned earlier why don't we have a listen to that song right now now seven and thirty strangers a-hopping they had been They were employed by Mr Cox's That's near old Golden Green T'was in the parish of Hadlow That's near old Tunbridge Town You should have heard the screams Of all those poor souls as they were going down. Now some were men and women, and others girls and boys. They kept in contract with the bridge, but the horses they took shy. They kept in contract with the bridge, but the horses they took You mentioned, um, Will, the British Pilgrimage Trust. 
tell us about that um, because that's been really a, a big focus of your last decade's work. Tell us about the British Pilgrimage Trust. Well, five years, five years I gave to that. Um, and, okay, so the ambition was to renew and revive the once incredibly active tradition of pilgrimage in Britain. We, you know, we were famous as, as pilgrims. We had an incredible network of shrines and saints and an incredibly active population mm. of, of wandering folk. It was, apparently, uh, it was incredibly annoying to various kings because the working folk of Britain it was the only freedom they had, you know, it's where the root of our word holiday is obviously holy day. It's the only freedom people had if, when you're tied to the fields and your, you know, your work is, is a large percentage of your work is owned by the landowner. You, you can't just jolly off to go and, you know, see yeah. the sights. But, but when the pilgrims came wandering past the village with their bells and their songs, you were able to drop tools and join them, and no landowner could speak against that because wow. you don't you don't speak against Saint Thomas, <laughs> you don't speak against the saints, you don't speak against the church. So there's this permissive, limited but permissive window of freedom that pilgrimage provided for hundreds of years, and and I saw that as an incredibly important expression of of, of what it means to be alive in this landscape. So I wanted to to renew that. But moreover, Britain's had a problem with its religious identity for, you know, about 500 years since the Reformation. It was an incredibly violent event where we sort of brexited the, the Church of Rome, the Catholic Church. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's never really been resolved in this landscape. And one of the things that was cut out of British national consciousness at that time was the practice of tradition. It was deemed too Catholic, the wrong religion, along with shrines, monasteries, chantries, and prayers for the dead. Um, it was just one of the numbers of Catholic traditions that Anglicanism consciously rejected in order to have a distinct identity, um, as championed by Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell and, uh, and his son Edward and daughter Elizabeth. And that led to, you know, the 39 articles of becoming an Anglican vicar. One of them is no Romish practices, which is kind of a direct reference to yeah. pilgrimage. And pilgrimage in 1538 was specifically, you know, banned. And I have spoken to a Supreme Court justice who said, uh, don't worry, it's legal again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that's all in place. Um, wow. But, but there is a, you know, there is a, it's, it's, you look to Spain and you look to France, you look to Norway and a lot of the countries where that, the, the Catholic tradition has remained relatively unbroken in comparison. And there's this ease of uptake in the tradition of pilgrimage that we don't have in Britain. There's a distrust that lingers. And my goal was to reoccupy the middle ground and to redefine the practice of pilgrimage in a way that keeps the centre absolutely open and clear and says everyone is welcome to this. Yes, we have a tradition in Britain, which is, you know, for the last 1500 years has been Christian. And yes, we have a, uh, a temple network, as it were, which is, you know, almost wholly Christian. Yeah. Um, and, but the people who are holding these spaces are desperate for people to come along and, and you know, partake in their offering of sanctity, peace, song, history, 
beauty, which, you know, and, and it's an incredibly rich infrastructure of, of holy places in Britain. And, and as well as that, there's also all of the, the older places, the stones and the um, water sites, which, you know, were often Christianized as holy wells. And you can approach them in, in a, as either a Christian tradition or as a sort of more elemental thing. And I wanted to bring everyone in together to say, hey, we can all walk side by side, people of all faiths and none. We can share a path and share a journey. And we're walking through a, a common heritage um, which we can engage with in different ways, but we can also acknowledge each other's part and we can learn from each other. And I had this lovely vision of a spiritual commons, which really actually doesn't exist anywhere that I've come across. It, it's, it's not something that, in, in Britain anyway, it's not people, religion tends to delineate and tribalize people. You know, we define ourselves by, you are not of my faith and I'm not of your faith and we are therefore different. Mm. It seems to be that, that, that pro, you know, that's the... Ne- tenor of religion ever since yeah. reformation possibly um and that's obviously not a particularly good thing for us that to be divided by faith i mean the word re-legion means re-manying bringing together what has been taken a sunday you know to to uh, unify what has been ununified so so i hoped that your pilgrimage could bring us closer to a common spiritual experience and and potentially solve some of the problems that we face in the modern world because Let's face it, spiritual community is pretty much our last bastion of hope against the, uh, the god of money, <laughs> you know, which, who kind of rules the roost right now, let's, let's be fair. Um, we, people literally get up and do whatever they're told on the command of that god. That's and right. that's how, yeah, isn't, you know, we'll destroy a forest if, the god tell, if, if money tells us to. We, but, we, you know, we'll, we'll, sh- we'll shut down the community if, that, if money tells us to. And so the only way I think we can actually stand up to that is through something that specifically brings us together without that motivation, which is spirituality. And the, the greatest example of a spiritual community we've got is the church. So, so I'd hoped that through pilgrimage, we could bring the church and non-church worlds together to create a sort of spiritual understanding, which could really make things better for everyone. That was my, my naive, optimistic ambition um, for the British Pilgrimage Trust. Um, yeah, and Obviously, it, it, I mean, I'll, I'll get to where it got to, but on the way, it was a lovely journey. I mean, my gosh, it met, Dan, it met unexpected success. The time was right, and I had a wonderful ride in, yeah. in, in that, you know, with all sorts of incredible journeys. Uh, um, for example, I made a money-free pilgrimage. I, you know, I tried to bring the old practices of... Yeah. of of, um, like I made a money-free pilgrimage from Winchester to Canterbury one time, and, and I carried a. Can I can I tell just a vague story of, of, of a few of the journeys that happened within that? Of course you that? can. I'd love you to. Okay, okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. So so the, the British Pilgrimage Trust sort of started with this. You know, you've heard of the Pilgrim's Way from yeah. Winchester to Canterbury. It was kind of in, invented by Hilaire Belloc at the turn of the last century, and it follows the uh, the North Downs, and so. My first British Pilgrimage Trust event was walking that with no money, but with an old German carol that I'd learnt when, uh, having walked from Canterbury to Devon, it was taught to me by a, a lady whose parents were kept alive in the Polish ghettos in World War II with their family songs. They had no possessions, but all they had left was the songs they knew, so they would sing them, perform them, and bind them in books. And one of the songs they sung was this German carol called Maria durch ein Dornwald ging, Maria walks through a thornwoods. It's the most sweet and lovely carol about how 
Mary walked through the thornwoods with Jesus below her heart, as in, in her tummy, in her womb. And by walking through with a sense of holiness, the thorns blossomed into roses that had, you know, hadn't blossomed for seven years. So there was this, you know, that song of how walking with a sense of holiness through a landscape can literally transform the physical landscape, can transform the reality that surrounds you. That was, uh, that became my first sort of um, a yeah. key, as it were, to, to pilgrimage. And, and when I got to Canterbury, the cathedral was open. <laughs> yeah. it, that was the, the great change. The, the, cathedral, the Canterbury Cathedral welcomed me in. I got to sing that song at the Undercroft, mm. um, which is the oldest part of the cathedral. In the nave, the whole choir practice stopped to let that song be sung. So there's this incredible difference from my 2004 first Canterbury pilgrimage to that one. You know, Britain was up for it <laughs> suddenly. Yeah. It, it had changed. Yeah, I think because of the change of intention, you know, I wasn't trying to mess with Chaucer mm. this time. I was trying to offer something back. Um, and although that very, <laughs> another medieval tradition was introduced on that, uh, that pilgrimage, I drank the holy well water from Winchester Cathedral. I had a filter, you know, I thought I was being safe, responsible, but it turns out that you need a, more than a filter when you drink holy well water from a crypt of a British cathedral. You need a, uh, the purifier which so i spent the first five days unable to eat or drink on this money-free oh. pilgrimage just you know purging you know it's a real tradition purging i didn't know I, we all know about fasting <laughs> purging's are the sort of quick way oh that's so funny <laughs> I, but honestly walking with this clear energy it's like it's like you're running on the fumes of your energy you know it's almost like this this you're, you're walking on the, the power of emptiness and there's, there's something in that, Dan. There's a tradition. There's something really strong there. Because when I got to eat again, you know, it's full power. Go, go, go. Sing, sing, sing. Walk, walk, walk. It, it, it felt different to anything else I, I'd ever walked. So, yeah, there's something there. I wouldn't recommend it to everybody, but... Uh, <laughs> no. No. Well, uh, tell us about the synergy with British pilgrimage and El Camino de Santiago. Well, okay. I mean, Europe. You, what we're talking about then is Europe, isn't it? Because... Mm. One pilgrimage tradition, you know, one church, one... We, we used to be a lot closer, I, I believe, than, than we are right now. We're obviously at a sort of nadir in relationship with... Between the UK and Europe, we're having a bit of a, a huff over here and, you know, we've thrown some toys out of the cot. Um, but that wasn't always the way it was. I mean, the, the kings of England we're also the kings of large parts of France and uh, various sure. other places. We've been, yeah. we've been, you know, we're, we're cousins with, with Europe. We're, we're kind of the same people, ultimately, with slight, slight variations. Um, so the, the community of St. James was its own tradition because, you know, St. James, his, his body was obviously found in the Field of Stars in Galicia. And there's been a huge, you know, that, that I think the, the technical word is cult. That cult has been very famous and very important through Britain. Lots of British pilgrims did travel to mm. um, Santiago and, and still do, obviously, yeah. many thousands. Um, but it was, it was most pilgrimage throughout the, the medieval heyday of pilgrimage was local. You know, most people didn't travel a long way to make a long journey. Those are the specialist pilgrims, the, sort of the famous ones, often the wealthier ones or the sort of more notable, incredibly poor ones. Mm. But typically, most pilgrimage was into the church up the valley. 
you know, you'd, you'd head up there or to the Holy Well just, just out past the next town. People could afford to go away, but not for as long as we maybe do today. So, so you've got to, if you think about the medieval pilgrimage landscape in Europe, it's, it's this incredibly diverse and ubiquitous series of, of micro routes because no one really walked a set route. You know, that is a modernism that we, we, we assume that this authenticity and you start here and you end here, that's not really real. What people did was they started at their home and they ended at their home. It was, um, you know, ultimately, sure. the ble- you walk to collect this blessing, but your ultimate destination in, in medieval pilgrimage is home. You know, you bring that back, you reintegrate yeah. it in. So, um, so I see the, the, you know, the, the path, the house of St. James, the house of St. Thomas, of St. Andrew, of St. Peter, you know, there's all these different saints with all these different pilgrimage destinations, and they're all cousins throughout Europe. And... It was very much a, a great family of, of pilgrimage. And the Brits just dropped out. As I said, we, we Brexited early. And we, we haven't been part of that for a long time. So mm. I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't, I haven't you know, for, until a couple of years ago, I hadn't left Britain in about 20 years. It's just, I just hadn't got around to it. I, I haven't walked the Camino to Santiago. I will one day. And I found, I know which route I'm going to walk as well, but it's, it's not a now thing, but... I've been trying to like imagine an extension to that network in Britain, a sort mm. of dormant extension of of the infrastructure of, of pilgrimage, and I've been trying to reawaken that. That's really been my quest, and well, because we need we need to honour this landscape and its traditions as well. I don't I don't honestly think it's especially healthy to bundle the whole world of pilgrims onto the Camino Française because you get you get problems, you get overdevelopment, you get overcrowding. Yeah. I mean, it's wonderful to see the success. I and mean, it's such an inspiration for, for lots of other countries to try and do something similar. But I think this, the future, the, the best possible future of the Camino requires a diversification and, and a return to the wider network of Caminos around Europe and indeed the world. And Britain has these public footpaths, Dan. I, I mean, it's, I don't know if you know about that in Australia. It's all the Australians that I've welcomed over here to walk pilgrimage. That they find it incredible that we have this, do you know about the network of, you know, routes that you can walk almost anywhere throughout Britain, over private land, farmland, hills, valleys, mountains, along rivers. There's this, this legitimate 24-7, 365 open public walkways that you can go almost anywhere with. Well, and they, yeah, please, I, please. No, no, I was, I was about to say, no, I don't know that. And I don't think many oh. Australians know that. And no, it, it blows people away. It's, it's this incredible inheritance of drovers and kings and merchants of the past. Precisely. And, and that's, yeah. the, that's the journey of the British Pilgrimage Trust, is to yes. tell people to inform not only the Brits but the world that this extraordinary network of journeys exists. Now, um, I... I, I I wanted to sort of, I mean, we touched on the, the synergy between Spain and, and and Britain, but I wondered then, will pilgrimage, if you Google it, is a journey with intention. Um, here are three and a half thousand miles of pilgrimage published on the the your website, the British Pilgrimage Trust website. Can any journey 
be a pilgrimage? Well, that's it, Dan. I'm, one thing that I'm not sure, that there's, a, there's a part of the story, a chapter of the story of me and the BPT, the British Film Trust, that I'm not sure you know about because I haven't actually really announced it. I no longer work with or for the British Pilgrimage Trust. We've had a, a parting of ways. Um, and I'm not going to necessarily go into, you know, too much detail. It's, it's one of the... When you told me the story about how you made your first pilgrimage because you were suddenly told that you couldn't go to the Olympics and you just had to accept that and roll with it and actually that led you to this whole new opening of, in your life that looked initially like a you know, a, a downside or a sort of disadvantage became this you know, wonderful new gift that you're able to give to all your listeners and to all your people you interview. That's a bit like what's happened to me with the British Pilgrimage Trust. I opened this door. I had this wonderful ambition. I did this work. And somehow it went not quite right for me. And in a way that was really hard to understand. I'm sort mm. of associating it a bit with the Thomas Beckett and Henry II tradition, really good friends who suddenly, mm. out of the blue, become strange enemies that no mm. one could really understand. Mm. That sort of happened. Right. We had... A, a weird falling out in the middle of it but i just absolutely like with thomas you know it was it looked like a devastating terrible affair but really the destruction of it opened up a whole lot of new blettings and new opportunities and new unity and was a, an absolutely necessary part of the story so i'm right now in that space of just trying to go forward in a post bpt world look that's where we'll leave will this week to return next week for another chapter in his extraordinary journey. My guest this week, William Parsons. And you can find Will, buy his music and share and enjoy his story at awalkaroundbritain.com. The American philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, who lived from 1803 to 1882, said, what lies behind us and what lies before us are tiny matters compared to what lies within us. Join me next week for the second part of our two-part conversation. I'll leave you with Will and his friend Ed singing The Burning of Achindun, an ancient Scottish song about the destruction of a village during clan warfare. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen Camino. As I come in by
I come in by Fiddick's side All on a May morning Hockadoon was in a blaze An hour before the dawning Crawling, crawling For all your crows are crawling You burnt your crops and tint your wine An hour before the dawning